For this Comcast edition, we're having a competition talk with Hans Zenger, head of unit and the chief economist team of Digicomp European Commission. Hans has a PhD in economics from the University of Munich and did his master's at Pompeu Fabra in Barcelona. He has published articles in journals such as the International Journal of Industrial Organization, the Economic Letters, the Review of Industrial Organization, amongst others. Hans, thank you very much for kindly having accepted to do this Comcast with me. And we'll make this a merger Comcast not only because you have been responsible for several merger cases at Digicom, but because you have been developing research recently regarding the economic effects of mergers. And I'll start precisely with that by asking if you can share with us some of the key takeaways from your research on mergers with homogeneous products. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. It's great to be here. The research that you're referring to, I should mention, is joint research with Markus Reisinger. And perhaps some of the key takeaways that we derive in this research is that the way market shares matter for mergers in homogeneous goods markets depends very much on the time horizon in which you look. So if we're looking about long-run competition, that's essentially capacity competition where firms compete by building capacities. And if we're talking about short-run competition, usually capacities are given so firms compete in price or in quantity against fixed capacities and there you see that the importance of market shares is a very different one so one of the results that we get in a Cournot type setting is that if we're talking about long-run effects so the classic Cournot type setting with volume competition then it's really mostly the market share increment that is determinative for the size of the anti-competitive effect of a merger so it's not so much about how large the parties are together but it's really the increment that drives most of the result. Whereas if we're having a situation where we're talking more about short-run competition with fixed capacities, then it's the market shares of both parties who come in very importantly. And the intuition for this, I think, is relatively simple because when we're talking about short-run effects, then a merger in the short-run, that's mostly a transfer of assets. We're talking about fixed plans and so forth that change hands. So, of course, the effect of the merger is going to be decided by both parties' plans and how large they are when they go together. Whereas in the long run, these plans, they're variable and they will change anyway. And so the long run effect of a merger is much more about strategy of a company. And there the big change pre to post merger is that simply post merger, we have one independent rival less. So the increment is really what matters most in the long run. Very well. And I think that distinction between the short and the long run is very interesting. And that brings me to the second question, which is a claim with which certainly you have been faced before at Digicomp as well, which is when merging parties that are involved in a merger in an homogeneous goods market, they come to the competition authority and they say, well, we have very high market shares, that's true, but we have no market power at all because we are offering a commodity and competitors have some spare capacity. Capacity, so we don't have market power because if we attempt to increase prices, our competitors will react by expanding either production or production and capacity. Now, what are the key elements that you think should be considered when assessing this claim on homogeneous goods mergers, building on your explanation just before? It's a very good question because indeed, I think in merger control in homogeneous goods markets, you always face this argument. Yeah, it's always the argument, well, our market shares may be a little bit high, but it's a commodity and rivals have spare capacity. So if we just a little bit increase the price, they would have the ability and incentive to kill that because it's a kind of virtual competition. And this, this may be true in some cases, but in many, many situations, it's not true because what it depends on is really the degree of spare capacities. So I think one important thing to understand is 
is that market power in homogenous goods markets with some spare capacity really derives from the degree to which firms are pivotal. The pivotal firm means the demand as it is in the market requires some of your units in order for demand to be served. Yeah. So essentially, once your rivals cannot fully serve demand, you are pivotal. And that means that you can effectively charge a monopoly price, if you will, over that part of your demand, which nobody else can serve. And the more pivotal units companies have in a market, the more they will have market power. And that's why we see even in industries with some spare capacity that prices can be quite considerably above cost, which one would not expect in this portrait scenario of all out competition. So I think the first thing that one should look at in these markets is the profit margins pre-merger, because if pre-merger, the companies are earning you know appreciable margins above the incremental cost, then what that tells us is that even with the spare capacities pre-merger, apparently the spare capacities weren't large enough to create enough competitive pressure for prices to go down. So if that didn't happen pre-merger, of course, it's going to happen all the less post-merger when you have less competition. The second thing I think that one should look at is essentially how large these overcapacities are. As I was saying, of course, if you have truly very, very large excess capacities, then also post-merger, it may very well be the case that a merger is harmless, at least in the short run, simply because rivals have huge overcapacities and really want to make sales and cover their fixed costs, and then you will have a very aggressive situation. But in many situations, that's not the case. And as a final comment, of course, we're talking here about the direct short-run effect I mean, there's also the question whether the merger may hamper the competition in building new capacity or, as the case may be, decommissioning old capacities declining industries. Indeed, Hans, and I think it's interesting to see that a concept that is mostly applied, I think, at least in decisional practice to energy markets, is also useful in a broader way to other industries, this idea of the pivotal role of the merging parties in satisfying demand. And that brings me to our next question, which actually I'm benefiting from having an enforcer that has research experience too. And I would ask, what do you think are, if any, the elements that would be worth adding to merger guidance regarding long-run effects, at least on mergers with homogeneous goods, in your view? Yeah, and indeed, I think certainly our guidelines at the Commission, I think many of the guidelines around the world in merger control, they don't make much of a distinction between short-run and long-run effects, and they are formulated with the implicit understanding that merger control will predominantly look at no relatively short-run effects. But I think it's more and more established now that competition that's happening today will have an impact sometime down the line, but it's competition that is happening and that can be restricted today with potential consumer harm in the future. On the one hand, I think a differentiated product markets, you know, you have this whole debate about innovation competition and innovation diversion, which is not really captured all that much in the European guidelines, at least. In the US guidelines, I think it's addressed in a much more direct way. And then when we're talking about homogenous goods markets, the issue of capacity competition, I think is something that if ever there's a revision of the guidelines at some point that might deserve a paragraph or two. I think it's important, this capacity competition notion, in particular because a competitive harm in this sort of long-run sense can be particularly important when the short-run effects of mergers may be small. When are they small? Well, they tend to be small either when you have huge excess capacities pre-merger or when you have huge excess demand. So whenever demand and supply are not really balanced pre-merger, then you either have a situation where basically every supplier in the market already is pivotal, so is trying to produce more and then the merger may 
may not add a lot of effect in the short run because people are eager to produce more but just can't because the capacity constraints limit them in the short run. Or you have the opposite thing that you have huge excess capacities and if you have these excess capacities, basically everybody's struggling and even firms with high market shares because they have so many unfilled capacities will compete very aggressively. So that's situations where in the short run, merger effects are likely to be small when demand and supply are very unbalanced. But these are precisely also the situation when, of course, this capacity competition matters a lot. So for instance, if we have huge demand and capacities are all filled, in the short run, a merger will not do much. But of course, that's exactly the situation where people think about, shouldn't we expand capacity at the moment? Yeah, I mean, if you, let's say, think of the oil market at the moment, we have very, very high prices. So if you had a merger in the oil market, maybe in the very short run, it might not change anything much because people are very happy to sell at these very high prices. But this is a market where it's a lot about expanding capacity. If you have a merger in such a situation of excess demand, then the problem may not be an immediate price rise, but may simply be that people do not compete in expanding the volumes that they can put into the market by competing in capacities. Very well, Hans. And can you think of an example of a merger where such concerns arose? I mean, in which the short run impact of the merger was small, but the long run effect was more pronounced? Can you think about a merger yeah, case? I, think, I mean, uh, one merger in the last couple of years, I think where this has been an issue was Novelis Aleris merger. So these are commodity suppliers for automotive in particular. At the situation when the merger was taking place, it was a situation where capacities were relatively well exploited. So in that situation where you have lots of capacities booked already, as I was saying, whenever demand and supply are in imbalance, probably direct merger effects are going to be small. Either people have already committed their sales for the next couple of years, or even if they haven't committed them, since there's so much demand in the market, even mergers with high market share will often not cause a lot of damage because even firms with high market share will be happy to sell at high prices. Now, this was a little bit the situation there. Of course, you never have in reality as clear cut as you have it in a textbook example, but we thought that long run competition, capacity competition in building new plants certainly was a concern in that market, whereas perhaps the short run concerns were relatively less strong than they might have been in some other industry with less strong utilization. Very well. So I think it's fair to expect that when the merger guidelines of the Commission are reviewed, we should expect more elements of this and maybe together with the assessment of competition and innovation efforts, which is another area where Digicom have made such important progress in the past years. And that brings me to our final question, Hans, which is slightly different from the others. There has been much discussion lately as to the role of structural analyses in merger control, or at least structural presumptions, and some claim that we are relying to lead on structural presumptions and that this might lead sometimes to other enforcement. Now, do you think that at least for homogeneous goods merger, there's further role for structural presumptions in our approach of competition agencies? Or do you think that the way we are doing things now is good enough? Well, I mean, of course, it's an important debate. I mean, it's related to the debate of increasing market power that we have seen over the last 30 or so years where profit margins, whichever way you measure them, have increased quite dramatically. And so, of course, there's always the call for competition policy in those types of situations. Now, I think as far as we're concerned in Europe, I don't get the sense that we need an additional focus on market shares or on structural presumptions, because I think to a large extent we have that. We have a merger control system which which already relies 
quite substantially on market shares. At the same time, I think also that this is important. I think it would be a mistake to have this sort of completely unstructured, open-ended effects-based approach. But I think it's important to take the market shares as the first step of your analysis. And that creates a kind of a rebuttable presumption, if you will. So if you have very high market shares, I think that kind of defines the standard of proof that parties would have to meet in order to rebut the presumption that with high market shares that likely the merger is going to create a problem. Now, of course, it has to be symmetric. I think the same is true for mergers with relatively low market shares. I think a competition authority should face a relatively high standard of proof. And I think all of this should always be rebuttable in the sense that if you look at the facts of these cases in more detail, when you look at the diversion ratios, when you look at the customer responses, when you look at barriers to entry and all of that, you get a much clearer idea than what market shares alone could tell you. But it provides a first step and it kind of defines, in my view, the standard of proof that all evidence that comes afterwards has to meet. Couldn't agree more, Hans, and I'm delighted that you have accepted to do this podcast with us. It was really a pleasure to talk to you about mergers. Thanks so much for the invitation. 